Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, produced by Nina Serrano, Vilma V, Julieta Kuznir, and Vanessa Bohm. In tonight's program, we're focusing on La Isla del Encanto, Puerto Rico. Vilma V interviews Nelson Dennis, the author of the book War Against All Puerto Ricans. The book takes an in-depth look at the history of the U.S.'s colonial occupation of the island. Also on the program, Julieta Kuznir speaks with the filmmakers behind the documentary The Return, which explores the return of loved ones from prison who were locked up as a result of California's Prop 36. Will of course feature great music from the Puerto Rican diaspora. So stay tuned. I'm Vilma V, and I have the wonderful privilege of speaking today with the author of a book about Puerto Rican history, which was written in a very approachable style. It's chock full of stories and interesting facts about the tiny island of Puerto Rico, which has been a colony since the U.S. annexed the island from Spain way back in 1898. The book is called War Against All Puerto Ricans, and the author is Nelson Dennis. Dennis graduated from Harvard College and Yale Law School, and for several years he was the editorial director of El Diario La Prensa, the largest Spanish-language newspaper in New York City. Are you with us, Dennis? Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for this great opportunity. Great. Well, thank you for being on the show. I want to start with the title of the book. It's called War Against All Puerto Ricans, Not Just Independistas or Nationalists. What made you title the book that there was a war against all Puerto Ricans? That's a great opening question, because, uh, because there's a specific and a, and a general context, con- context to it. The specific is that 
those exact words were uttered by the police chief of Puerto Rico, a gentleman named Elijah Francis Riggs, E.F. Riggs, who uh, his police force shot four Puerto Ricans, three nationalists, and a fellow buying a lottery ticket in broad daylight in October 1935 in what was known as the Rio Piedras Massacre. And he then immediately held a press conference. He called the press, convened them, so that he could utter these words, that if Pedro Albizu Campos and the Nationalist Party continued to agitate the sugarcane workers and the university students, there would be war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. So that's a specific answer. The, the title was the words that were uttered by police chief Riggs to the entire island of Puerto Rico. The general context is that the reason Riggs was on that island was because Pedro Albizu Campos, the first Puerto Rican to graduate from Harvard and Harvard Law School, had just headed an island-wide agricultural strike that resulted in modest, but for Puerto Rico, very significant gains. It doubled the, the sugarcane workers' wages from 75 cents to $1.50 a day. It was not much, but it was a difference between, for a lot of them, starvation and not for their families. The moment that Albizu Campos succeeded with this agricultural strike, a new governor who was at an army general, Blanton Winship, and a new police chief, a military intelligence officer named E. Francis Riggs, were sent down to the island to militarize the entire police force with the explicit purpose of squashing the, uh, the, the Nationalist Party and any attempt at, at in, independence. And so what, what happened as a result of that agricultural strike is a continuous set of, of violent events, the Rio Piedras massacre, I just mentioned, the Ponce massacre, where they slaughtered 17 unarmed men, women, and children, and even two police were caught in their own crossfire for a total of 19. The Utuado massacre, where people were again assassinated in broad daylight. The bombing of two towns, they bombed Ayuya and Utuado. They arrested 3,000 Puerto Ricans who were accused of being, quote-unquote, suspected nationalists. They instituted a Carpetas program, which were secret police dossiers on over 100,000 Puerto Ricans over a period of six decades, and these files were so so ma- so, so massive that they now total almost two million pages. They even created a law. It was called a, a gag law, La Ley de la Mordaza. It was Public Law 53. In 1948, it was on the book for nearly 10 years, so 57, which made it illegal, a felony, to say a word, sing, or whistle a tune sing a song about independence, or even to own a Puerto Rican flag. This is the kind of war against all Puerto Ricans that was conducted for decades. So that's the general context. And it was all based on money. It was, uh, there was a sugarcane economy, and the United States was going to be damned if it was going to be upset by Pedro Albizu Campos and the nationalists. Yeah, you just gave the great little synopsis of all the massacres and all the horrible things that have occurred. But let, let's start with the man that you mentioned right at the beginning who was agitating the uh, sugarcane workers, Pedro Albizu Campos. You mentioned that he was the first Puerto Rican to go to Harvard. But tell us a little bit about him when he was born and a little bit about his life. Well, you know, when you, when you, 
when you see the trajectory of, of this man, in a sense, he's a combination of Abraham Lincoln and, and George Washington. He's very much in the American vein. Um, he was made an American citizen because Puerto Ricans were made American citizens in 1917. And in a sense, it's, it's an American story. Uh, a person that, you know, really makes something of himself. He was born in 1891, some people say 1893, in the early 18, 1890s, very poor circumstances, a little barefoot boy in, in Ponce, Puerto Rico, in the Barrio Tenerías section, which is a poor section. But he was brilliant, and um, he got scholarships. They sent him to the University of Vermont, but he, was just, he stood out so much that from Vermont, Harvard offered him a scholarship, and he went to Harvard in the early 19, in 1912, and uh, graduated from Harvard College, Harvard Law School, returned to Puerto Rico, and to basically practiced poverty law, because he turned down all sorts of very lucrative offers to open up a one-man law office in his hometown of Ponce, Puerto Rico, and dedicate himself to the more transcendent objective of fighting for the independence of Puerto Rico. The operative word fight doesn't mean that he was going to shoot people and he, he was a wild-out revolutionary. It was based on what he had studied and developed at Harvard Law School. He studied the, the, the Treaty of Paris that, that concluded the Spanish-American War and very rightfully concluded that it was basically a real estate closing and that the United States really didn't have any right to basically assume ownership of, of an entire island because Puerto Rico had a charter of autonomy before it. Then what the United States do, it wasn't just political, it was economic. They came in 1898, 1899, Hurricane San Siriaco just happened to occur. It was the most, one of the worst hurricanes of the, of the century. Devastated the islands, coffee crop, tens of thousands of people were, were left homeless. The United States sent no relief, but instead the following year, they devalued the Puerto Rican currency and declared that it had to be turned into American dollars and each Puerto Rican peso was now worth only 60 American cents. And those two currencies were actually of equal value. Imagine what that would mean here if every person in the United States suddenly lost 40% of, of their accumulated, of, of their income and mm. of, their, of their savings. That was in 1900. 1901, the Hollander Act presented a steeply graduated set of property taxes on every farmer in Puerto Rico. So you have these economic hits that the United States put in, put in place really fast. Uh, the immediate result? Farmers lost their farms. If they tried to get loans, they had to go to what was called the American Colonial Bank. There was no usury law restriction, so the bank charged whatever interest rates it wanted. What it really wanted was not to make loans, was to have the farmers default so they could own the farm. It's precisely what happened. By 1920s and 30s, 80% of Puerto Rico's most arable land was controlled by between 10 and 15 U.S. banking syndicates. And the four largest sugarcane centrales, Guanica, Fajardo, East Puerto Rico Sugar, and Aguirre, controlled over half of the acreage of all the sugar plantations in, in the entire island. It was that centralized. First governor, the first U.S. civilian governor, was named Charles Herbert Allen. He served came in in 1901. He served almost 17 months. He handed in his first uh, his first yearly report to President U U.S. President McKinley, and then he immediately, within three weeks, hightailed it up to Wall Street, became the uh, vice president of Morgan Guarantee Trust, and within 10 years, he was first treasurer, then president, then a member of the board of directors of the American Sugar Refining Company. Basically, the principal, the first, and the leader in this charge into the Puerto Rican economy, and that company, 
that that American sugar refined company got grew so quickly that it at one, at one point operated 98% of the sugar refining capacity of all the United States and that company today is known as Domino Sugar Oh my this goodness. was Charles Herbert Allen. He was the first hit economic hitman to come to Puerto Rico, the very first civilian government. So he set the template for the charge that came in after him. When they saw, well, this guy was really smart. I mean, he was a capitalist par excellence. He didn't down to go down to, the, to govern or to legislate or to in any way embrace and incorporate Puerto Rico in, into the greater American society. He was very clear. That economic report, which is written about in detail in my book, was like a business plan for Wall Street. He even took soil samples over different parts of the island to determine the relative productivity compared to Hawaii, Egypt, Louisiana, and three or four other countries. He did. A, he devoted himself to nothing but learning how to become as rich as possible, as quickly as possible, the moment that he left the island. And when other people saw what Charles Herbert Allen had done, you had a wave of carpetbaggers coming in, which continues to this day. You're listening to Nelson Dennis, and he's the author of the book, The War Against All Puerto Ricans. I'm your host, Vilma V. I want to keep us a little bit on Pedro Albizu Campos, just for right now. Tell us how long he was imprisoned, and was he subject to radiation experiments? That's where a book helps, because it's easy to say, this happened, and uh, and you, you didn't, nobody knows about it, and then you get written off as fringe journalism or a crackpot, but there's a larger context, and we were able to explore it in my, in my book. I, I devoted three chapters to it. There was a woman named Eileen Welsom who wrote something called The Plutonium Files, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. And in that book, and she did a three-part series, too, for newspapers she worked, she disclosed and documented that from the period of the 50s to the late 70s, there were 16,000 undisclosed radiation experiments conducted by the U.S. Department of Energy on people throughout the United States and especially on prison populations. And undisclosed, many of these people didn't even know that it was happening at the time. So this is the context within which we approach Albizu Campos. Albizu Campos at one point was, was being laughed at by the guards in La Princesa prison as El Rey de las Toallas, the King of the Towels. The reason is because he was wrapping his head and body in cold, wet towels and slathering his skin with, with Jurgen's cold cream lotion. Well, it turns out that he was being radiated to death. And when you look at the pictures of it, uh, of him, it looks like he had been flipped over on a barbecue grill. Um, uh, a Cuban, the head of the Cuban Cancer Association, Orlando Daumi, went and diagnosed him and said this man is being radiated. A Geiger counter was brought closer to his body and it pinned the needle to maximum and then the Geiger counter stopped working. That, that was how strong the, the radiation was. The Cuban legislature pr promulgated a resolution asking for the temporary extradition of, of Albizu Campos to Cuba so that they could treat him and then bring him back to wherever they, they wanted, but to get him out of that of that environment. It was written about in Mexico, Argentina, Chile, all over the South, the South American press were writing about, about, about this. But the United States made sure that they kept a, 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 a wall, a moat around Albizu Campos so that no doctors after Daumi were able to go and diagnose his condition. So now there is a increasingly, constantly mounting body of evidence, and I was able to see it from the FBI carpetas because I ordered 
thousands of pages on Albizu Campos, many of which were regarding the period in La Princesa when it's being radiated. And it's become abundantly evident from what I, from what I read. Um, and it didn't even take a lot of correlating. It was, it was facially apparent that his, he was being subjected to long-term torture, and it was called TBI, Total Body Irradiation. And it was being conducted not only in his prison, but throughout the, uh, throughout the United States. There was a place called Oak Ridge that was a center for, the, for these government grants that were con- conducting these studies. So um, the evidence to me is overwhelming, and I present that evidence in the book, that Albizu Campos, who was derided and, and ridiculed as the king of the towels, was actually subjected to radiation for many years until it killed him. Everywhere, they, everywhere. 
from the moment that he led that agricultural strike in 1934-35, look at uh, how the rest of his life goes. In 1936, he gets sent to jail on, on charges of seditious conspiracy against the United States. By the way, the same exact charges that Oscar Lopez Rivera is serving under right now. He, in 1936, he goes into jail. In 1965, Albizu Campos dies. That's 29 years. He spent 25 of those years in jail. The other four remaining years, he was followed round the clock, seven hours, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by an FBI agent platoon. They would rotate, so it required 25 agents to keep that six-man rotation. Six FBI agents followed him everywhere he went, all around the island. They would interrogate anyone who, who spoke with him. They would even arrest people for, speak, for speaking with him. So, as a, so look at his adult life. He advocates for the independence of Puerto Rico. They don't take him seriously. The, the moment though he leaves this, this strike, they trump up the charges because they, they, when they, they couldn't find him guilty on the first trial, they had a retrial, and they re the jury with 10 North American jurors and two Puerto Ricans on it. He gets sent to jail in Atlanta Penitentiary in 1936, and then in the aggregate, 25 years in jail, four years followed by the FBI, and he dies in 1965. That's the life that the United States created for this heroic, brilliant individual who enunciated very basic human principles in Puerto Rico and simply reminded the United States of its own founding principles of government by the consent of governed and that all men are created equal. That's all that he basically did. So that's why I, Albizu is, he's Nelson Mandela, Jose Martí, Simón Bolívar, all, all wrapped up into one. And he, and, and he really, really belongs in that pantheon of, of Renaissance figures who have a very large perception of human potential. And mm. that's what he wanted for Puerto Rico. That's not what we have in Puerto Rico today. In a sense, this is the 50th anniversary of the death of Albizu Campos this year, April 21, 2015. Fifty years later, what we're seeing on the island with the public death and the, the inability, the dysfunctional relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States that now isn't really working for anyone, well, in a sense, this is the legacy and the ghost of Albizu Campos coming back to remind everyone of, of what he was saying all life. And speaking from, from another figure who had a huge impact on Puerto Rico, but whose legacy is quite different, let's talk a little bit about the very first elected governor of the island, an airport's named after him, Luis Muñoz Marin. What can you tell us about his life and times? Well, his father, Luis Muñoz Rivera, was a very revered figure because he's the one that negotiated the Carta de Autonomía, the Charter of Autonomy, with with uh, Emperor with Sagasta from Spain and uh, and basically brought Puerto Rico to the cusp of being a sovereign state in 18, 1897-98. But then, literally, within a matter of weeks, the Spanish-American War started, and that, that basically got thrown in the, in the dustbin of history, the Charter of Autonomy. Luis Muñoz Marín was his son. Um, his, his father died at a relatively early age for Luis, when, when Luis was 16. And for a while, Luis really wasn't thinking politics. He was thinking Greenwich Village. <laughs> he, he bummed in and out. He married a woman named Muna Lee, but he didn't, and he had two children and didn't really pay much attention to them. Um, Muna Lee would, for instance, be in Puerto Rico, and Luis Muñoz Marin, with her two infant children, with, staying with uh, Luis Muñoz Marin's mother, Amalia, 
but Luis would be in Greenwich Village. He apparently developed some some bohemian habits as well that followed him through life. And um, he, when he went back to Puerto Rico in the early 30s, he was basically broke, which is why he, he went back. He had run out of money. He couldn't get any more money out of his uh, out of his wife and mother. So he sort of went back with, with a tail between his legs. But he had a, a, a safety net because he his father had owned La Democracia newspaper, and it was still there. So he started working for La Democracia, suddenly realized, whoa, there was a legacy that I can tap into here. And he cashed in on it. He ran, and he became a senator in 1932. He had no thought of, of going into politics before, but he saw this opportunity, and it worked. Yeah, it seems like he traded on his name a whole lot. And then at some point, there was some legislation in the U.S. Congress to allow for Puerto Rico to gradually gain independence. And he played a key role, it seems, in preventing that from happening. Well, um, and you're asking really good questions. I appreciate it because I noticed that you're just at the right time. You sort of refocus just (laughs) as about I'm about to go way off the topic. (laughs) I appreciate it. So he's elected, 1932, on the uh, Partido Popular Democrático, the PPD party. And their slogan was, uh, they had this flag with uh, Ibaro, which is a country person in the middle, and then the words, Pan, Tierra, Libertad, Bread, Land, Liberty. The liberty, obviously, an explicit reference to the liberty of Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. which is, again, obvious, means being free of the you know, the United States. So that was not only a part of the platform, it was a part of their flag, on liberty. And he gets elected on that. However, when the FBI, which was running these carpetas programs on people, developed a very healthy file on him, it included some documents, according to the FBI documents, multiple and reliable informants that Luis Munoz Marin was a narcotics addict. And that's what I sort of uh, obliquely referenced about Greenwich Village, um, but unfortunately for the island, he developed a, uh, a habit of smoking opium, and uh, that became known. He was actually even re- referenced in Puerto Rico at the time as El El, uh, El Moto de Isla Verde, the junkie of Isla Verde. Wow. And um, in his own autobiography called Memorias, he devotes three or four pages to a, a very large meeting of the entire assembly of his party, hundreds of people, where he w- was forced to stand up and, and basically deny the fact that he was a narcotics addict. So this is something that followed him through his life, and he even wrote about it himself, obviously denying it. So here's how it relates to the tidings bill. The, um, the first FBI report that puts this all together is dated April 1943. Now, at that point, uh, Luis Munoz Marin was now, he, he had grown politically, and he was now the majority leader of the Senate. He was the principal political figure at the time. The governor was still an American U.S. person named by the U.S. government. So he it was the, the, the top Puerto Rican in the, gov- in the Puerto Rican government. But in April of 1943, when this document came out, it coincided with the, the, the proposal by U.S. Senator Miller Tidings, who was the chairman of the Senate Insular Affairs, Insular Affairs Committee. And it was a, the Tidings bill provided a pathway to independence similar to the one that was pr- proposed to fi- the Philippines, which the Philippines took. But uh, Luis Munoz Marin, once they had this information on him, he became basically, 
he was uh, he, has, he was on a very short leash, and he and the United States had this information but withheld it. They these were classified documents. They were only recently declassified over the last decade, and I was able to, as a lawyer, to, to foil them to do freedom of information law requests. And and in my book, there's an image of the a full page image of that document itself regarding what I'm talking about. So once the government, the U.S. government had this information on recently, you suddenly see this 180 degree turnaround. That very month, he goes up to Washington to testify and lobby against the tidings bill, saying that independence would not work for Puerto Rico, that it would be destructive and that Puerto Rico couldn't even survive. I mean, he, he went out and put all the, all the rhetorical stops up in Washington. He didn't only do it in 43. He did it in 43. When there was another tidings proposal in 45, he did it again. And then there was a quasi-proposal in 48, and he went up there again. Repeatedly, he, as the principal spokesperson for, the, for Puerto Rico, would go up and lobby against the tidings bill, even though his own party, the Partido Popular Democrático, had voted nearly unanimously in favor of the tidings bill. He went up and spoke against his own party unilaterally, basically as his own spokesperson, but claiming that he spoke for all Puerto Rico, saying that they did not want independence. Can you imagine that? Confiscaron los guiros. También los panderos, por formar una plena en la huelga de los muelleros. Confiscaron los guiros, también los panderos, por formar una plena en la huelga de los muelleros. Según la historia lo cuenta, la huelga de los muelleros fue en el año 38, sucedió en el mes de enero. Confiscaron los guiros, también los panderos, por formar una plena en la huelga de los muelleros. Se escucha la plena. so much in the book that you just read it and you're just shaking your head you're just like it's unbelievable it's been just a fascinating read but I want to bring us up a little bit to the present and then talk a little bit about the why you wrote this book and what you hope to accomplish because I believe that you couldn't surveil and oppress Puerto Ricans without the collusion and assistance of native Puerto Ricans and people who live there so what do you think 
about this situation that often pits Puerto Rican against Puerto Rican, the continued division. What is your take or any possible solution you have to the divisiveness that continues to exist and seems by many by many accounts to have been by design by the U.S.? But what do you make of that continued division, Puerto Rican against Puerto Rican, the history of those who have been involved in the FBI who were colluding against their own countrymen? Well, I think that the the initial Puerto Rican character, as shown by the Taino and Arawak Indians, inheres from the anthropology and the geography of the place. It's La Isla del Encanto. It's like a Garden of Eden. It is so beautiful and so productive and plentiful, which is why the United States was, you know, so aggressive about it, that it naturally led to a gregarious, open, sharing trusting people because that's the nature of the sunlight and the and the sun-kissed beaches and the productive soil there was no reason for a an indigenous natural population to be anything other than sharing and trusting and collegial because that's the, that's the environment that's the that's the the living reality of Puerto Rico there's no need to be any well any any different however when when Christopher Columbus came on his second trip in 1493 with with 17 ships and he landed in Puerto Rico the trusting uh, uh, natives the, the Tainos they gave him gold they showed him the gold and they showed him where it was because they're so trusting well, what happened? Well, the European mentality set in, and they enslaved the, the, the Tainos and then forced them to bring in a, a quota of gold every month, and, or they would cut off their hands. So, you, this is that, you know that's a very immediate, stark cultural juxtaposition: mm-hmm. two different ways of dealing with life and with what God has given us. The when the Americans came in, they were w- welcomed to some extent as as potential liberators from that from that legacy. But they did it even worse. And so, again, a natural trusting, sharing people. You had six decades of carpetas, 100,000 files, over 100,000. And in order to create that, you need informants. Now, this doesn't mean that, not, that, that the Puerto Ricans were naturally mistrustful, disloyal, and that they were ready to, to rat on each other. This means that the FBI went in and they intimidated, coerced, did whatever it took. And it's very simple. You just bring someone into your station house and say, we heard certain things about you, and they just make it up. And then they bring and they say, but we know that you know, you're, still, you're still a good guy, but we need you to help us with this other person. And so they, that's how they start. They have all sorts of ways to get into people and, and divide brother against brother. They even did it in the highest ranks of the Nationalist Party, where Faustino Diaz-Pacheco was informing for 15 years on Raimundo Diaz-Pacheco, who was the commander of the, of, the, of the youth cadets of the Nationalist Party. He was Albizu Campos' right-hand person. So the, you, for, if you see the three generations, 60 years is about three generations. So in the collective memory and therefore in the DNA of our island, we have increasingly accumulated this sense of, of paranoia, of someone looking over you, of, of someone oppre- oppressing you, seeing everything that, that you do, and that there be informants all, all around. That is very conducive to people not sharing, not trusting, being a, a, a little more self-oriented, because their natural impulses have been have been stifled, have been cut short. And so even though you, one could say, well, the, it was Puerto Ricans that were in those files, that, that there was a very deep root to that. It was the United States that brought in this poison and made people turn against each other. And as 
part of the politics that we have today in Puerto Rico. I have to lay it at the United States foot for doing that. That's the voice of Nelson Dennis. He is the author of the book, The War Against Puerto Ricans, and he's speaking with me today. And just bringing us back to the current as well, there's some startling statistics about Puerto Rico currently that since 2010, 33,000 government jobs have been eliminated, the highest unemployment rate than anywhere in the United States, $70 billion in public debt and $13 billion in unfunded pensions. And I guess the saddest part of all is a murder rate that's six times higher than what happens in the U.S. and on par with a civil war zone like the Congo and the Sudan. That's all from your book. Tell us what you see as a solution to what looks like a terrible situation. And it's a good question, but although they, those all look like little different points, statistical points on a the map, there's a connective link, a glue to, to all of it. Oh, I and agree. It harkens, and it harkens back to the relationship of 117 years ago. The United States was very adept at creating maximal stress on, on, on an organism known as Puerto Rico. At the, from the outset, and from that stress, they shook loose the property of the of the farmers so that the banks could get, get control of eighty percent of the acreage. So we are seeing that same same. It's not even a strategy because they do it um, by entropy. It's almost like uh, like Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil. You don't have to plan it; you just let it happen. Mm. They they they've done that very over the last ten years. Those twenty three thousand layoffs of government workers, that public debt, the fiscal austerities, the eleven point five evil that they've just cre- created, the the sales tax, gas. Lean taxes going up twice in the last year. Water and electric rates that are that are going sky high. Increased small business and property taxes. All of the, these fiscal austerities, the scalebacks of pension, as you mentioned as well, were inflicted because the United States economic sector told the Puerto Rican government, "If you do this, we will not downgrade your public debt." Do this, and we will maintain your public debt on, the, on an even keel, and you, that way you'll still have access to the credit markets and be able to continue functioning as with your credit line as a government. So Puerto Rico did that in good faith, and then Moody's, Dun & Bradstreet, and Fitch, the three rating services, went ahead and did precisely what they said that they wouldn't do. Mm. They downgraded Puerto Rico's $73 billion in public debt to junk bond status. In doing so, they, they significantly raised the interest rates, the premiums on that debt, and that is why now Puerto Rico is in a di- downward spiral of rapidly accumulating unserviceable debt. That's why we have an 11.5% evil, which is a 11.5% sales tax, essentially, because the United States has not been dealing in good faith. At the same time that they're inflicting all these austerities on the working working class, the poor, and the middle class Puerto Ricans, there is an Act 22, it's called, it's a law, that extends a 20-year complete tax exemption on all interest, dividend, and capital gains income to foreign investors from the United States, one of the leaders of which is a fellow named John Paulson, who made $15 billion for his hedge fund in 2007, betting against the American economy, betting against homeowners, taking advantage of defaulted loans, buying, buying distressed properties for pennies on the dollar. Basically a vulture, capitalizing on people losing their homes. John Paulson has come into Puerto Rico under that Act 22, that 20-year tax abatement, and he's developing a $500 million Dorado Beach resort complex and other things all over the island. And there's other millionaires 
at billionaires doing as well. Bloomberg News, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and even New York Mag- New Yorker magazine have, have all become the carnival barkers for this freak show that, has, that is becoming the Puerto Rican economy. They're exhorting. They're, they are loudly proclaiming that Americans should go down and invest in Puerto Rico because it is a beautiful tax haven. So what you have is you're getting the gentrification of an entire island. The Puerto Ricans are leaving the island at record rates because they can't afford to live there because the jobs, the jobs aren't available. At the same time that you're getting a stampede of billionaire Americans buying up the properties that, that the Puerto Ricans leave behind for pennies on the dollar. That is a, an, almost a mirror image of what happened 117 years ago. And that's why my book has a, has a sort of a historical grounding effect because it allows people to see that there is a long illustrious context for what's been happening in Puerto Rico over the last five years. And that's the voice of Nelson Dennis. He's the author and attorney of a book, his new book, called War Against All Puerto Ricans. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Nelson Dennis, thank you. I appreciate it.
Si el que me guió a ti, yo nací afuera para sobrevivir. Pero cada día que aprendía mal deseo me crecía. A ver a la pela, aunque la gente no mal decía. A ver el sol bajar por detrás del mal. Y que me coja una base un baile coqui cantar. Quiero conocer a la isla desde culebra sin nombre. Un combazo lo visa, mira tremendo vacilón. Ir a Jayuya buscando el mano pavón. Con una yaucana que me robó el corazón. Sentarme en la marquesina a tomar un cafecito. Un panzo a bala con un viejito rivalito. Hoy lo puesto de mi viejo Puerto Rico escrito por las mismas manos que mataron a los taínos y trajeron africanos, esclavizaron ser humano. Después ilegalmente llegaron americanos. Tuve que ver que no pude creer. Mi gente está fuerte pero sin poder. Si no comer más que plátano y panapé con cebolla. Aquí se encuentra más metano, se comida criolla. A la toxicidad de farmacias y bases militares. Y parte de mal viejense que no deben entrarse. Checa y victoria colonial. Desde el principio fuimos ratones experimentales. Ciudadanía forzada y no fue por casualidad. Fue que no va a morir en la primera guerra mundial. Y lo que hicieron no me puedo olvidar. Los 30 hasta los 70 tratando de esterilizar. Todas las mujeres no fue cabalada. Cheque a Barceloneta 40 años atrás. Encontrarás que cerraron escuelas por falta de niños. 20 años un pueblo sin parir ni un hijo. Imagínate, ahora todo el mundo no trabajó. Y con los dos niños tiempo pa' familia o relajo. Por eso viajan hasta tierra lejana a algo. Mejor y lo que encuentran son cocotazo y balazo. Discriminación, especialmente si eres mulato. Vivir en este país no quiere decir que eres paisano. Si quieres más clarito te pareces como un caído. Acuerda lo que hizo América a sus nativos. Donde vivo es un bosque de concreto Se ve tanta tristeza que te mata el sentimiento Esta experiencia es nuestra herencia Ser boricua, ser sobreviviente de mucha violencia Nacer afuera es vivir con una ausencia Algo que nos falta y que llama nuestra conciencia Es como un huérfano que sabe de su mamá Aunque nunca la conoció, tiene el deseo de regresar El alma busca la esencia espiritual La sangre lleva amor incondicional Llega el momento sin igual a cada cual You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. We are going to talk about an important film that's under development. We have the filmmakers in the house with us. We have Kelly Duane de la Vega, as well as Katie Galloway. They are both with Loteria Films. The film is called The Return. And first of all, thank you both for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you so much for having us. Why don't we start with Katie? Because, Katie, you have an intimate relationship with this station. You've probably been in this studio before many a time. Why don't you tell us about your work documenting prisons and prison reform? Well, it all started right here at KPFA. My father is a civil rights and constitutional law professor, and so Kelly's is as well, and they actually knew each other way back when and worked together a little bit. So that was part of my upbringing here in the Bay Area. I grew up in Oakland, but it was at KPFA in the news program where I've got my first taste of prison life, and that was going as a reporter when I think I was 20. Um, so it was like almost 25 years ago up to Pelican Bay. And we went in conjunction with the Pelican Bay Information Project, which is a prisoner's rights group, looking into prisoner allegations of abuse by correctional officers after the prisoners had brought a class action suit against the guards at Pelican Bay. So we were investigating that. And um, I interviewed another shoe inmate at Pelican Bay State Prison every 15 minutes for two full days. And I think that really set my course as a journalist. I'd say that the 
criminal justice system and mass incarceration have really kind of been my beat ever since in radio and then as a documentary filmmaker. So Kelly and I subsequently over the last couple decades have made a number of criminal justice films, but they've often been really telling these kind of horror stories of the American criminal justice system as mass incarceration has been escalating and escalating stories of racial disparity and very long sentences that are very much longer than other modern democracies for comparable crimes, stories of, you know, devastated communities and lives and really a lack of true rehabilitation or helping people when they get out. So this film for us, The Return, was a moment a moment of possibility because it was actually the first time in 2012 when Prop 36 passed, which was three strikes reform, the first time American citizens have ever scaled back sentences of the currently incarcerated. And so we wanted to look at this small moment. I mean, it's not that small. Thousands of lifers have subsequently gotten out. But look at it through the institutions and through the lens of, you know, if we're serious about scaling back mass incarceration, which there's a lot of talk about now from Obama to Hillary to the right. How do you do that? How do you undo what we've built for the last, you know, four plus decades? And we thought looking at institutions and lives and communities, we might get a glimpse into what is really most needed, most misunderstood, and where the real opportunities are for positive change. Kelly, why don't you break down some of the main questions that this film is tackling? Our film, The Return, looks at a criminal justice reform from multiple perspectives. We follow the people who orchestrated the passage of Prop 36 and wrote it and sort of watch them as they're trying to figure out how do you successfully implement a sentencing reform? What is needed to help people who are getting out? A huge portion of the people that are in our film have spent over a decade, some close to two decades behind bars, many for minor nonviolent crimes. And um, they've really sort of are experiencing a Rip Van Winkle experience. So they're psychologically adjusting to a changed world. But there's also profound scars that they have developed from trauma inside a prison, from lack of programming, lack of support. They're struggling to find their way. So we we look at their journey through the courts. We look at their journey. We start in prison. What is successful reentry? What are the ingredients? How are we failing as a state? And how are we succeeding? So right now, I know you all are in the process of putting this film together. You've worked on many films. El Poeta is a film that we discussed here on La Raza Chronicles. That was an important film that Loteria Films produced. So now Loteria Films is tackling this issue. Tell us where you all are at in terms of production. We've been filming really since before the law passed. We started with a series of shorts on nonviolent offenders serving life, one of which ran as a New York Times. It's called an op doc. It's like an op ed, but it's a short film with a written piece. We just did a sort of bookend to that about reentry that came out in the New York Times last week. So it's been this sort of the campaign around the film has been a series of shorts and sort of trying to raise audience awareness and work with policymakers. But the film, 
film is the centerpiece of our campaign, and we, we expect to release that early 2016. So we're in the edit room daily, just nose to grindstone, trying to get our theatrical cut finished. We also have a commitment from public television that will be airing nationally late 2016, most likely. But right now, we're really trying to get the theatrical cut finished, and we are in the process, if I may, of a Kickstarter campaign to get the final funds needed to get us to a really, really strong theatrical rough cut. I think we've raised about $35,000 of 50000 And if we don't raise it all by early August, then we lose everything. So we're really calling on our friends and uh, relatives and allies and you know people in the community who really care about this change moment on mass incarceration, which it really is. This is this is a great opportunity that we don't want to let slip between our fingers. Please consider going to thereturnproject.com or to Facebook The Return, which is our film. And there's information about how to get to the Kickstarter there and help us get it over the hump and help us get this out there as soon as possible. And just one thing I wanted to add is Really, you'd, it's one of those things where even $1 makes a huge difference. So it's not, we're not just looking for donations from people that have a lot of money, but we're also seeking community grassroots support for people who care about issues of reform in terms of sentencing reform and also drawing attention to the much needed cause of figuring out reentry so we can stop building an underclass. Yeah, and, and really it's also becomes the community. It's sort of are asking for little bits of support where people can give it, but then it also becomes our network. And so when we screen it locally or when we, you know, are having an action related to the film or the campaign or when it broadcasts, we can keep all those people in the loop. So we're very excited to see the numbers going up in the hundreds. And we really feel like they're joining our attempt to push this movement forward. And that's exciting. One of the things that we've really noticed as we've been following this story for about three years now is this concept of reentry is more of a buzzword than really something in practice on the ground. There are a handful of organizations that are doing incredible work, but we need so much more of those types of organizations and a deeper understanding on how to help people returning from prison. This will not only make us safer, cut down recidivism, but it's the right and humane thing to do culturally. And another thing to add about that is just, I remember one of the characters, you know, one of the people we followed for the film who was serving 150 to life and then got out under three strikes reform and is doing amazingly well and who we learn from every day, truly. He's an amazing human being. But he said that what meant so much to him coming out where they, you know, people coming out really feel not welcomed by society. They feel like they're wearing this big scarlet letter, like they have to, you know, check the box about having a felony or, you know, that that the odds are that much more stacked against them structurally to their success. So it's very sort of disheartening to come out and feel like the world doesn't really want you. And so he said someone handed him from his parole office in Santa Clara a sheet that said, these are the employers who hire people who are formerly incarcerated. And that one gesture of a mimeographed copy of 
a handful of people who said, we welcome you to come and apply, even though you have a record, put enough wind under his wings and faith in humanity to feel like, okay, I can face this, I can do this, and I can succeed. And I felt like, wow, there are so many little things that can be done that can make people feel welcome or give people an opportunity. And um, and we need to generate more of those and think about how we can support those efforts that already exist. I've had in the studio with me part of the Loteria Films team. They're talking about The Return, which is currently in production and hopefully folks can support and also they can see on their local public TV station. And I have with me Kelly Duane de la Vega as well as Katie Galloway. Thank you both. So again, a reminder, how can people connect to the film? They can go to thereturnproject.com to see the trailer and find out more about the film and the campaign. They can also go to loteriafilms.com, which is L-O-T-E-R-I-A films, all one word, dot com. And there's a Facebook page for The Return as well. And that has all, all three have information about how to donate to the film. We're a 501c3. So we hope people will try to get on board this way if they respond to the trailer and the story we're telling. We could really use your support. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM, community-powered radio. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, just search for La Raza Chronicles on SoundCloud.com. Make sure to like us on Facebook to receive regular updates on news, arts, culture, music, and much more in El Mundo Latino. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.